This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And now, our feature presentation. If I asked you to name your favorite movie, you'd likely have a title or two ready to go. It's maybe critically acclaimed or an Oscar winner. But what if I asked you to name a terrible movie that you absolutely love? My favorite bad movie is one called Monster Dog that stars Alice Cooper. It's 20 years later and Vince Raven is going home. He's hoping for a new beginning. But somehow, he can't escape the horror of his past. It was recorded in another country, so I think it's voiceovered. Um, but it is spectacularly terrible. Richard Thomas, Duluth, Minnesota. I'd like to talk about Horror Party Beach, my favorite band movie. While the beach set twists to the big beat sound of the Delairs, swinging out with six rocking hits. Thanks for those messages. Now, me, I have a soft place in my heart for 80s dance movies. Think Xanadu, the break-in franchise, Electric Boogaloo, or Staying Alive. Just like Krispy Kreme Donuts and reality television, we love to watch movies that some consider junk. Films like The Room, which one critic described as the Citizen Kane of bad movies, can still be seen at independent theaters across the country 20 years after its release. Why do we love to watch bad movies? And who decides if a movie is good or bad anyway? Today, we get into those questions and hear all about your favorite bad movies for the latest installment of the 1A Movie Club. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more after the break. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. Let's get into the conversation. With us is John Horn. He's a film reporter and vice president of the 1A Movie Club. Also with us is Paul Shear. He's an actor and comedian you'll know from shows like The League, Fresh Off the Boat, and Veep. He's also the co-host and founder of the hit podcasts Unspooled and How Did This Get Made? They're both podcasts about movies. How Did This Get Made explores the type of films we'll be covering today. And Catherine Coldiron. She's a critic and author of several books about movies. Her latest is called Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter. Thank you all for joining us. I want to hear from each of you. What is one of your favorite terrible movies to watch time and time again? And give us a brief description too. John, I'll start with you. I've got two. And one isn't bad. It's just a movie I love that very few other people like. And that's Honeymoon in Vegas, the Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, I can quote the movie forward and backward it's not a great work of art, but I think Nick Cage's performances, performance in it is a thing of beauty. Uh, and then, because I have two kids, I also like to watch bad movies with my kids and live snark them. And I think we'll be talking about this film later, Skyscraper, starring uh-huh. Dwayne The Rock Johnson as a one-legged 
um, security consultant who has to rescue his family from a 200-story skyscraper in Hong Kong. So, Paul, what about you? There's a movie called Miami Connection that was lost for many years, made by a karate instructor in Orlando about the drug trade and rock and roll music in Miami that is absolute perfection. Alamo Drafthouse found the reel on eBay and restored it <laughs> years later. Um, and you can get it now, but it is one of the funniest movies. And I, I feel like the, the bad movies that I love are these movies that have passion. You mentioned The Room, so I won't go there again, but I'll mention one other one that's definitely uh, worth watching. And it doesn't fully count as a movie, but it kind of does because it's on Netflix. Diana the Musical, it's the um, the video adaptation of this Broadway stage play of Diana the Musical. So I, because it was put to tape, I'm going to say that it is actually, it's a movie. It counts as a movie. Okay, now I've got something to watch on Netflix this weekend. Yes. Catherine, what about for you? The one I've got to mention is Girl in Gold Boots from uh, 1968, I believe. And it's a, it's a terrible go-go dance movie that takes place in Los Angeles. Um, and it's about a, a girl with big dreams, but she imagines that she can't possibly get any higher in show business than to dance as a go-go dancer at a, a lame club in L.A. Anyway, um, it's a grimy little movie. There's nothing really skilled or excellent about it, but something about it I just love. I love watching it. Well, Paul, it's fair to say that as one of the co-hosts of How Did This Get Made, you get to watch bad movies for a living. What was the inspiration behind the podcast? Watching a movie is just one part of the theater experience. I love seeing movies with my friends, and the best part is talking about them, right? When I was growing up, it was always, let's go see a movie, and then we'll go out to a diner afterwards. And we would sit there, and if it was great, just revel in how amazing it was. And if it was terrible, we'd sit there and just pick it apart. And that really was the impetus of how did this get made? We were sitting around a table with a bunch of friends and we were talking about this movie, Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps, uh, which is a true <laughs> statement. Uh, and uh, and we were just making these jokes about this movie, which was so, so bizarre. It's a, it's a very bizarre movie. And that's a podcast. We should do this as a podcast. And this is before podcasts were even a thing. This is 13 years ago. So it it felt like that energy is something that so many people relate to, that conversation around movies, good or bad. It's it's our book club. It's it's a it's a simpler book club, an easier book club. I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that art is subjective, right? So mm -hmm. something one person loves, another person's gonna be like, this is the Absolute worst. Absolutely. How do you define what makes a bad movie bad, Catherine? I think that people's definitions of bad movies vary depending on how many movies at all levels of skill they've seen. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't seen Manos, The Hands of Fate, you might not think that there is a worse movie than Waterworld. But you would be wrong. Um, <laughs> I think bad movies e exist in a, in a space that's like non-Kantian, if that makes sense. It's, it, it doesn't have anything really to do with um, identifying what is good and beautiful versus what is bad and worthless. It's more about whether this project succeeded or failed. Mm -hmm. And failed movies are the movies that I love most to talk about. John, what about for you? How do you think about the good and bad in filmmaking? 
I would say nobody sets out to make a bad movie. And there's some people who are not capable of making a good movie. Tommy Wiseau in the room is a good example. But I've talked to studio executives and they say if they make a slate of 12 movies a year, and one person told me this, you think maybe four will be really good, six will be okay, and two are going to be terrible because that's just the odds. You're not trying to make a bad movie. It's just going to happen. Um, but bad movies, you know, they're bad studio films. They're bad independent films. I go to a lot of film festivals and see movies that no one else is ever going to see. Years ago, I was at the Sundance Film Festival for a movie. I cannot remember its name. That was up for sale. 100 people in the room at the start, eight of us at the end. Uh, another distributor said to me, and it's a line I use now at the end of the movie, interesting film, not for people. Um, <laughs> That's, harsh. That's harsh. But it's true. It's absolutely true in the independent film world. I just came from the Telluride Film Festival. There were movies there. It's just like twice, uh, interesting film, not for people. And then there are movies that are bad that people love. And I suspect we'll talk about that because it is very subjective. Yeah. And Paul, what about for you? Because I'm thinking about some of the films you review on your podcast. It includes Look Who's Talking Now. It's Danny DeVito and Diane Keaton playing the voices of dogs. It was a follow-up to Look Who's Talking because apparently we, we needed that. I mean, Look Who's Talking too, <laughs> two, I think, or yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's three films in the franchise, but go ahead. <laughs> what makes a movie enjoyable to watch that's bad? I think that's the difference, mm. right? There are plenty of bad movies. Movies that are unwatchable, movies that are boring, movies that just don't hold our interest. I think the movies that are um, so bad they're good are movies that make choices that are wild. That you're like, oh my God, in what planet is this making sense? Or wait, how did that get over here? There, It makes you sit up the same way a Daniel Day-Lewis monologue might make you, you know, edge to the front of your seat like a choice to have this, you know, um, Ryan Reynolds surfing, uh, you know, on like a, a car door in the green Hornet or something like that. You're like, wait, what, like what is happening? And it, it that to me is, those are the, the movies that really, I love the ones that are, they're fun to watch. We shouldn't be torturing ourselves. Uh, they, they have to engage you on some level. We're going to head to a quick break. When we come back, we take a deep dive into some of our panelists' favorite bad movies, including one of my favorites, starring John Travolta. Back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Healthy Spaces podcast by Train Technologies. Healthy Spaces brings you the latest insights and experts on sustainable advances in climate technology and science. Listen to Healthy Spaces on your favorite podcast platform. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. Let's get back to the conversation. John, 
You mentioned Skyscraper. This is a 2018 movie starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's a private security consultant who's also an amputee. He's trapped in a 225-floor high-rise fighting terrorists while trying to protect his family who's trapped with him. And here's a short clip from a pivotal point in the plot. Uh, Dwayne Johnson's playing Marine veteran Will Sawyer. His friend Ben, played by Pablo Schreiber, reveals he's a double agent and pulls a gun on him. I'll call you tonight. What a day, huh? Not going to make it in time. What? Why'd you take it out of the bag? You should have just left it in the bag. Ben, what are you talking about? Give me the tablet, Will. What's going on? What's going on? You screw up. You get a whole new life. What do I get? Hmm, Medical discharge? Working for thugs? You don't know these people, Will. I don't have a choice. You messed it up. I know you're hurting, brother, but you don't want to do this. We're not brothers. Give him the tablet, Will. Okay, John, what are the elements of this movie you love to hate? It is, it is, you know, the worst of Towering Inferno meets Die Hard. I mean, it is just, it is complete thievery. It's not original. Dwayne The Rock Johnson's character's family is in this high-rise building. There's another scene, and I'm watching this uh, film with my older son, Charles. We're watching it in a theater, and we know very quickly it's a bad movie. Later in the movie, Nev Campbell's character, she's married to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, goes into this police van because they're trying to figure out who's, it, who's, uh, you know, who's running this operation. And she says, I, I saw the guy, I, Scandinavian, I think, about six foot tall, muscular, and the cop hits a couple buttons and literally in two seconds, is it this guy? And he's like, yes, that's Johannes, whatever. He's a, like runs, it's like, what? And my son and I are just doubled over laughing that in two seconds on, based on Scandinavian, I think six foot tall muscular, they come up with a guy's picture with one keystroke. Um, it's just ridiculous. I mean, and it's a movie it wasn't intended to be bad. It was intended to be a ripoff of Karen Inferno and Die Hard. And it's just risable. It's just there's not a believable moment in it. Catherine, I want to talk about one of the films you review in your book. And I have to admit, this is I'm not guilty about this being a, a movie I love at all. I was going to say guilty pleasure, but I'm not I don't feel bad about it at all. It's the 1983 film Staying Alive, starring John Travolta and Cynthia Rhodes. Here's the trailer. So I used to be pretty incredible myself when I lived in Brooklyn. Really? What happened? I moved to Manhattan. <laughs> this is Tony Manero. He's got the looks. He's got the guts. He's got the moves. Now, all he needs are the bricks. Oh, you think that because you're on a show and I'm not, that's competition, yeah. right? I think competition. Well, what is it? Envy. Okay, what's the premise of staying alive, Catherine? It was directed by Sylvester Stallone and partially written by him oh, as well. Yes. Now, Sylvester Stallone is good at writing Rocky over and over and over again. And you can see that happening in this movie. Um, another important thing to know is that all of the sort of sociopolitical context of Saturday Night Fever has been stripped away. And you have Tony just sort of pointlessly in Manhattan um, trying to make it. But the, the, thing I, the main thing I said about this movie in my book was that it's full of sociopaths. 
And that's why it's very hard to kind of work it out and figure out how you're supposed to watch it because there's no one, there's one character that you like, one, and all of the rest don't behave like people. And I compared it to Showgirls because Showgirls is the same way. It's full of sociopaths and there's one likable character. And yeah, I mean, it's a dance movie. The, the back 45 minutes is full of this ridiculous Broadway show that I never get tired of watching. Oh my God, um, the best. I pull it up on YouTube from time to time just to just for the joy of it. I mean, it's also incredible. we have to mention the best Frank Stallone song of all time is in that movie. I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> I mean, Frank Stallone. The competition's not high for best Frank Stallone song of all time. <laughs> but yes. Uh, okay. So there's plenty to critique in this movie, right? Garbage. There's the writing, there's the acting, the plot. You cannot criticize the choreography. I don't care what you no. say. It is top-tier 80s choreography. This movie grossed about $126 million in the box office oh, yeah, globally, well. like six times what it cost to make. John, why do you think there are these films that critics pan, but audiences still flock to them? There was a movie that was on Netflix a year and a half ago called Brazen. It's a Alyssa Milano film. It was the number one film on the service. It's Rotten Tomatoes score, 13% from critics, 13% from the audience. This is what the San Francisco Chronicle critic Mike LaSalle wrote about Brazen. Perhaps you've experienced this once or twice before in your movie-going life. A film will be coasting in a bad direction when suddenly it dawns, like smoke clearing all at once, that what you're seeing is not merely bad. You're seeing something horrible. You're seeing innovation. You're present at the creation of a whole new kind of awful that previously didn't exist. Number one okay. movie on Netflix a year and a half ago. There's no accounting for taste. People didn't watch Brazen because they were hate watching it. They thought it was an interesting Alyssa Milano film and we're in the middle of the pandemic and maybe they didn't need some escape. I don't know. But yes, well, there it, are plenty of bad movies that people love and they don't love them because they're bad. They love them because they like them. Well, I want to hear from some more of our listeners about their favorite bad movies favorite all-time bad movie is called The Naked Jungle. You know about me, don't you? You haven't mentioned it the whole trip, but I think you know all about me. <laughs> Your name is Joanna Selby. You're 25 years old. You come from New Orleans. You married Mr. Lannigan by proxy. You've never seen each other. Oh, you know a great deal. Stars Eleanor Powell and Charlton Heston about a couple stranded in the South American jungle when they are threatened by Marabundo, which is some sort of a giant ant, as I recall. My favorite bad movie to rewatch is Mommy Dearest. To a truly great lady, Miss Joan Crawford. You know what's missing in my life? Come on, you've got everything you want. No, I don't. I want a baby. It never fails to entertain and make me laugh every time I watch it. Stuart emailed us, I work at an independent movie theater in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's called Midtown Cinema. Every month we gather a group of wonderful comedians to riff on terrible movies. Over the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of bad film. My favorite probably would have to be Manos, The Hands of Fate. From the sound sync issues to the bizarre plot, that one always leaves us in stitches. And Charles emailed us, at the top of the list has to be Reefer Madness. What makes it great and bad is the seriousness with which it is done. The off-the-wall exaggerations, the overacting, I find it fun to return to every 10 years or so. And I think this gets back to the 
the fun of talking about it. Like it becomes this communal experience. One of my favorite shows was uh, Mystery Science Theater yes, 3000. 3, yeah, and it was just because I wasn't paying much attention to what was happening in the movie. I was paying attention to how the actors were riffing <laughs> on on the terribleness actually, of those movies. Go ahead, Catherine. I actually have a Mystery Science Theater 3000 tattoo. That's how much I love that Whoa. show. And um, something that interests me about the way that they engage with movies is that they do just that. They engage with them. Rather than just mocking, they actually dig yes. into the movie and make jokes about its content. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the discussion. Now, we can't talk about bad movies without diving into the low-budget 2003 drama called The Room. It's regularly shown at hundreds of independent theaters across the country. A perfect world. These are for you. Thanks, honey. They're beautiful. A perfect life. I would do anything for my girl. I love you, Lisa. I love you, Johnny. He provides for you. Darling, you can't support yourself. I don't love him anymore. He didn't get his promotion. And he got drunk last night. And he hit me. It's not true. I did not hit her. Well, maybe you should have a girl, Mark. Yeah. John, what's the story behind The Room and Tommy Wiseau, its creator? What is the story? That's that's like that's an existential question about this film. Um, I mean, Tommy Wiseau. This is like where bad movies are separate from bad movies. This is a guy who had no idea what he was doing. The movie is mostly incoherent. Um, if I were to tell you what it's about, I, we might yeah, be here for a while. It's not the point at all. Yeah, it's it's how much it's more executed, the experience of watching it, right? Or how it's not executed. Um, James Franco, unfortunately, uh, owing to his behavior, not a good person, made a film about it called The Disaster Artist, which is actually a, it's a very good movie about a very bad movie. Um, but yes, The Room is considered the worst movie of modern era, but it wasn't a studio movie. It was an independent film. I don't know. How would you describe it, Catherine? I, it's just it's a it's a snark watch, kind of like Showgirls. It's so bad. It's good. Well, Showgirls is a much richer film and a, right. and a more interesting one. Um, the Room is um, a movie made by someone who has lots of money but no capacities, which is an interesting break from someone like Ed Wood, who has no money but also no skill or talent. So 
Wizzo, I think, very much wanted to put his vision and his passion on the screen, but didn't understand that his vision and passion were exceptionally ordinary, mm-hmm. that they just, you know, that he actually had nothing to say, really, um, except that love hurts. We should note here, well, Paul, you played a small role in that 2017 film, The Disaster Artist, which yes. is a comedic interpretation of the making of The Room, and you spent time with Tommy Wiseau. What did you learn about his passion for this movie? First of all, Greg Testero, who is his partner, who wrote a book all about it, which is an amazing read, uh, was on How Did This Get Made before the book came out and told us these stories that were absolutely amazing, kind of confounding in the sense that, you know, Tommy was living on the set. And I disagree with some of the things said about The Room because I believe The Room is a Tennessee Williams play uh, but written by an alien, Tennessee Williams. It, it like He doesn't quite understand it. There's a passion there. I believe that this movie needs to be on the 100 best movies of all time. Like When you're making the list, there are so many easy movies to say, that's a bad movie. Like like uh, Gary Busey in The Gingerbread Man, where he's like a killer gingerbread cookie or something like that. Um, thanks Killing. But, uh, yes, Thanks Killing. But this is a movie that was meant to be a serious drama. It then was embraced as a comedy. Now, Tommy will say, oh, yes, I meant it to be a comedy. But he didn't. It was trying so hard. And I feel like that, I give that a pass. I don't care about the Sharknados because they're just trying to make a crappy movie. I love, like, this passion. And that passion reads, it doesn't make any sense. Why is there a framed spoon on, you know, in in the movie, like, on the wall, like, so I was the, uh, in the movie, I was the AD. I got to work with Tommy on his own follow-up movie called Best Fiends. I, I love Tommy, but it's fully, you know, Tommy is, you're going to get this thing from him. I, I, I think it's unlike anything else. The same way that you say, like, Spielberg is a visionary, so is Tommy. We just understand mm-hmm. Spielberg more. <laughs> okay. It it's makes- like abstract art. Okay, I mean, but that makes me wonder about how often the movies we think of as bad movies or that get these cult followings and and they kind of take on a life of their own. How how does that happen? Somebody else here, Hope emails, pardon me if I've missed the part of the discussion, but isn't the Rocky Horror Picture Show high on this list? And that to me is another movie that's taken on a life of its own, much in the same way The Room has. We sit around... It's like a sporting event. We're just, we're all in to this thing. And and when you're sitting with people and you can laugh and cheer, one of the best experiences is going to see Rocky Horror or The Room. And and pe- some people know it, some people don't, but you're in a moment. It's like seeing a Taylor Swift concert, truly. I, you're in a mm. cult of pure love and enjoyment. Right. It's Catherine. like when you go see a horror movie and there's an audience that is talking back to the screen. That is Better than watching that horror movie at home. If people are saying, do not go in the closet, do not go in the closet. And somebody goes in the closet and gets killed. I told you, do not (laughs) Not go go in the the closet. closet. And one of the things that's important about the room is it yielded the disaster artist. And so these works live on. There's a 1957 movie called Zero Hour about an airplane disaster. It is the basis for 1980s airplane. In fact, the makers of airplane, Jim Abrams and Jerry and David Zucker, won the Adapted Screenplay Award from the Writers Guild of America for adapting it. And whenever the filmmakers were stuck creatively making Airplane, they went back to zero hour. In fact, the line, I need someone back there who not only can fly this plane but didn't have fish for dinner, is verbatim, (laughs) verbatim from zero hour. It's one of the great lines because, you know, the fish is bad and everybody's getting sick. So 
just as The Room gave us Disaster Artist, Zero Hour gave us Airplane, these movies live on. And they live on because there's something special about the way these stories are told. Some people might say it's bad. Some people might say it's horrible. But there's something unique about the vision of those original films. And it yields material that turns into another film. You could say it's better, but it's certainly a derivative art that is inspired by this work that people have dismissed. Well, I talk about this. Oh, sorry. I talk about this in the sense that movies not for people, right? So it's, I think it's movies by committee are the ones that I'm fascinated by because Uh. you could tell it was in a boardroom. They're like, well, we need a little, we need a little bit of break dancing in this. We also need to have like, it has to have a moral for the kids. And we also need a scene. Yes. And that to me is like, it's, it is everyone putting something into a stew. And I think that filmmaking is an, an interesting art because you need one person to, at the end of the day, deliver a product that is their vision. Um, and that's why on Tommy Wiseau's side, I'm all for it. And that's why I also love movies on the other side, like uh, The Green Lantern, which you could tell was too many cooks in the kitchen. Like too many cooks in the kitchen make for a fascinating movie because it's like... who. Who is this for? I don't I don't even know. Is this a child's movie or is this an adult movie? Like we watched a movie called Milk Money with Ed Harris and Melanie Griffith. Yeah. I think it's a kid's movie, but it's about kids who go into the city to see a sex worker and then take her home to marry their dad. And like, I'm like, oh, this is a kid's movie? <laughs> I want to make sure we touch on that 1957 science fiction drama, Plan 9 from Outer Space. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampire, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electrogun! No! Catherine, you wrote an in-depth study of this movie, and I know this is a big answer, but why is this such a fascinating but bizarre movie for you? I think that it's more properly the Citizen Kane of bad movies than The Room, even though I love The Room, because it makes every single mistake. Everything that could go wrong with a movie goes wrong in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And Citizen Kane, similarly, is like the opposite example, you know? So um, that's why I think it's, it is a great exemplar for bad filmdom. Okay. I just want to hear from each of you on this, this question, and we'll use Staying Alive as, as an example. So you go to a friend, and you're trying to convince them to watch Staying Alive. And they say, look, watching a movie... That includes scenes of people clad in spandex, hip thrusting for an uncomfortable span of time, all while maintaining intense eye contact with other one another. This is this is not my jam. This is not for me. How do you convince them to give it a shot? I think you need to set the tone right. You know, if if you're gonna have a party. Uh, Super Bowl party, you want to make sure that you 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 pull in everybody, the people who are there for football, the people who aren't there for football. So you need to set it up the right way. There's something about going to a theater and seeing the room versus watching the room in your house. When you go into a theater and you watch the room or Plan 9 or Showgirls or any of these movies, the crowd kind of takes you there. I like Taylor Swift a lot, but when I saw her show, 
I became a Taylor Swift mega fan. I'm mm-hmm. like, I get it. I love it. It You kind of have to be, you have to jump into the deep end. You can't just like put it on back. Like, well, tonight I'm going to watch Showgirls. And that, that to me is, I think that's a big difference. Set the table. And John, what about you? Live snarking. Come watch a movie with me, a bad movie. I will live snark through it. And if you're not laughing, you're not my friend. <laughs> That's John Horn. He's a film reporter and VP of the 1A Movie Club. Paul Shear is an actor and co-host and founder of the hit podcasts Unspooled and How Did This Get Made? And Catherine Coldiron is a critic and author of several books about movies. Her latest is Junk Film, Why Bad Movies Matter. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Chris Remington. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format, so you become a mini-expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.